0: Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the April 10, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. It's National Equal Pay Day, everybody, and why today? It's how long into the year women must work to earn what men earned in the previous year, 100 short days. It's even worse for brown and black women. Hashtag us too. That explains why you're seeing red today. And the California State Senate adopted a resolution recently commemorating the month of April as Arab American Heritage Month in California, recognizing the important contributions of Arab Arab Americans to our state. And Rashad Aldebag has been uh, on this show a couple of times. He was one that was honored at that. Event on the floor of the Senate. Today's program, Tiffany Ackley, a Liso Viejo attorney and municipal candidate on this year's general election ballot, will take up, talk about the wave of meetings in Orange County cities about whether or not to join the Department of Justice lawsuit against the California Senate Bill 54 regarding sanctuary cities. In the second segment, UCI Law School professor, Alex Camacho, will take up the potential for the case of coastal property owner Vinod Kosla to challenge the California Coastal Act in a fundamental way. Kosla's property is in Martins Beach at Half Moon Bay in San Mateo with the owner's legal representative sites set on the U.S. Supreme Court, the case could have far-reaching consequences for the entire state with respect to public access to the coastal zone. Surf's up, stakes are higher. We'll be right back after a station break. back to Ask a Leader. My guest first in the show is Tiffany Ackley, environmental attorney who's been monitoring Orange County's municipal forums on whether to adopt motions to join U.S. Attorney Jeff Sessions' challenge to California's SB 54 on Sanctuary Cities. Mm -hmm. Tiffany is a product of South Orange County. Actually, she's she's right here from Irvine and moved her family that she had eventually a lease to Elisa Viejo, a decade ago, she's paid more dues as an ho- um, homeowners association board president. Her practice has been with the uh, currently. Uh, her practice has been with uh, various civil litigation. She's currently running to serve in four, a four-year term as an Elisa Viejo City Council candidate. She was a judicial clerk at the California Court of Appeal District 4th District Division, practiced law as a civil litigator at, among other firms, Barker, Kumas, and Olmstead, and currently is general counsel of Kidman Law. Tiffany completed her Bachelor of Arts in Economics and Legal Studies at Scripps College, her MBA in International Economics at SDA Bocconi, and her Juris Doctor. That's her law degree at the University of San Diego School of Law. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask Alina Tiffany Ackley. Good morning. Good morning. Well we have a wave rolling into and around Orange County with individual municipalities as well as the County Board of Supervisors considering resolutions to join the U.S. Department of Justice challenging California's SB 54 concerning sanctuary cities. Break that down for us a bit and how tell us how binding are these resolutions. And we'll, we'll take up the complexities of it as we talk about some of the interactions with various city council members.
1: Sure. Well, what we're seeing in Southern California, in particular in Southern Orange County, are a bunch of cities coming together, Um, And choosing to opt out of SB 54. In the case of Aliso Viejo, what that has meant is that they have agreed to join in an amicus brief, uh, opting out or indicating to the court that they do not want to be a sanctuary city. Uh, We've seen Los Alamitos and Fullerton and Fountain Valley do something similar. Of particular interest to me was Eliso Viejo, the fact that uh, joining an amicus brief when the county has already declared and filed a lawsuit challenging the law SB 54, uh, to me seems to be just a terrible waste of tax dollars. Uh, Not only are my federal tax dollars going to the lawsuit, but then you also have the state um, and the county, and now we're looking at cities. Uh, What we're really seeing here is not anything that will be very binding per se anymore. It won't be. Well, and not any more than, for example, the county's lawsuit. Whatever the court rules in the county lawsuit and in the federal lawsuit will be binding on all of the cities. So essentially what we're seeing is just political gesturing by local politicians who want to make a statement in this very divisive issue.
0: Red meat at the Orange County buffet.
1: (laughs) That's exactly right.
0: Well, you've been attending all three that have been convened so far. That's Huntington Beach and Elisa Vejo. I'm Remind the Fullerton and Fountain Valley. Fullerton and Fountain Valley. Uh, Fountain Valley. So, uh, so have you seen anything like this kind of civic engagement?
1: Well, just to clarify, so the, the cities, the local cities generally live stream all of their meetings, and I've got two young kids, so I've a- attended remotely, uh, several of them. But Aliso Viejo, I attended in person. I've been attending city council meetings since I was uh, in college, and in Orange County, no, I have never seen anything like this. And in particular, in my city, Aliso Viejo, it was unprecedented. We've only, I think, on one once or twice have we had standing room only in the city chambers
0: and they're small it's a small one. it's a, it's a city of what 58,000
1: a little bit less than that about 50,000
0: 50,000 so it's a it's a small municipal kind of facility so and so you were uh, overrun i mean i full disclosure i was at the the meeting outside for the first hour, two and a half hours. I couldn't get in until later, until the bitter end at 1.30 after the vote there. So, so this was unprecedented. in what different ways, Tiffany?
1: You know, we, we, we've never really seen that many people show up. They were really chomping at the bit to get inside. We had sheriffs that I don't think, while they did an excellent job, uh, I don't know that they anticipated the number of people that were going to show up. Um, and so we had in Aliso Viejo, we've got a capacity of, of approximately 75 people that can come into those chambers. And we saw the sheriff split them up into two large groups. Uh, the first group, myself included, allowed to come in and watch the uh beginning proceedings and then we were all kicked out and the second group were allowed to come in the group and, I was went go oh, in the group with you, you were him. in so i just want to mention
0: that oh, first of all the sheriff's department that's the security that the city's contract there is no pd no police department. So right, right.
1: And that makes an even more interesting point. Yes. So for, for cities that have sheriff's departments um, that provide their police services, you've got this conflict. So in Aliso Viejo, if we have this resolution and we join this amicus brief, which is now what's going to happen, um, we are essentially telling our sheriff's department, no, you cannot comply with state California state law. Unfortunately, what I don't think that our city council members, at least all except for one, uh, realize is that that simply is something that the sheriff cannot do. They are sworn to upload uh, to uphold California law. They can but- upload it. It helps them <laughs> uphold it.
0: They've got to upload it first. It- they got to understand the law they're enforcing. If they Good upload point.
1: it, then maybe they can look at it every once in a yeah. while. Um, you know, if they uphold the California law, um, we cannot go in and tell them to to not abide by it. That's just simply not something they, they can do, which begs the question, the original question that I asked is, why are we doing this? Is this not just a waste of our tax dollars? We're now spending this money to do an amicus brief, to sign on to it, to have this resolution, to instruct the sheriffs to not follow California law on an issue that's already being decide, decided by and paid for by taxpayers throughout the county. So, and then another part of the, the sheriff's piece here.
0: Well, one, that the sheriff... Didn't do any kind of diligence to figure out that this was going to be a big deal, that a lot of people congregating. So that, that there's a little deficit in their their planning, and and sheriff, a security
1: detail in a municipality needs to do their their job on that, right? I think that you and I take a different opinion on this. Um, having attended all of the city council meetings for the past year and a half, um, I have nothing but respect for the sheriff's oh, deputies. Okay. Um I think that they did anticipate the big turnout. There were more, far more deputies there than I've ever there seen were. before. Okay. Um, I don't know that anybody could have guessed or even thought that there would be that many people showing up. I understand that in your group, uh, the buses came out and unloaded various protesters. And I think that that's pretty unprecedented, even for the other cities around that have heard this issue. And we'll, we'll break that demographic down in just a bit. So you were talking about the, the kind of expenditure
0: of taxpayers money on this there so there's some motivations let's let's talk about not so much central casting but it approximates that what are the motivations behind especially the mayor in running this resolution by his colleagues on the council
1: well you know i mean i have my own personal opinion as to what the motivation was i you know i haven't spoken one on one with him um i would Assume that and hope that his interest would be in public safety. But when I sat there during that meeting and I listened to some of the questions that were being asked, in particular by the Mayor Pro Tem Ross Chun, uh, it, w- it became pretty apparent that nobody had done their homework. They didn't know how much money uh, uh, was being spent with regard to handling crimes by illegal immigrants, um, I'm sorry, undocumented immigrants. They didn't know. How much it would cost to file the amicus brief or to prepare one? It simply seemed as though they had some motivation beyond public safety, and my assumption is that it was just political gesturing. Uh, perhaps these people have aspirations for higher office. I know that my mayor is currently running for sheriff, uh, and I and I wonder. And a, and a bunch of people raised this issue. I did not because I don't know him very well or personally, uh, but. To a certain extent, it does beg the question, is this just a a campaign platform? Uh, Is this just something that he can go around and say, I brought this issue to my city council and I forced the issue. I'm not going to work with the other side um, and use it as that basis. And in which case that upsets me because that's my public funds, my taxpayer dollars going to pay for a campaign.
0: Well, that was a a palpable kind of a concern in this forum. They seem to be... Going sort of playing, uh, putting it together as they were going along. They didn't know how much that their contract. It's a contract legal counsel. It's right. It's it, not an in-house staff member.
1: No, it is. So we we contract with the local law firm, um, and there is a flat rate we pay every month. Above and beyond that, we pay an hourly rate, and any litigation would include that. So an interesting point uh, that was brought out by Ross Chan was that. Uh, should we file this amicus brief or even join in it? He was questioning the city attorney who was present about the cost. And the uh, one person in particular in the audience had mentioned that it would just cost the the ink and the paper, which is simply erroneous. Um, the attorney said that if they just add our name to the amicus brief, there would be no cost. Um, as an attorney, and I've done this for 10 years, I take major issue with that because I would never put the name of a city and 50,000 people I was representing on a brief without having reviewed it and researched it and verified that everything in it was accurate and what the city stood for. Right, um, and, that it, and that it had a function in terms of
0: what are the crime rates with various demographics in the municipality.
1: Exactly, and and all of that work takes time. And, um, and as I mentioned in my comments during city council, you know, attorneys aren't cheap. Um, and those are costs that we will incur assuming that the attorney does his due diligence and actually reviews this brief before putting our name on it, that I think are frivolous. We don't need to incur those charges simply because there are other cities and other counties that are challenging this law. Now, I don't particularly want to challenge this law, but if it's going to be challenged, I don't want to have to pay for it three times.
0: No kidding. For those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Tiffany Ackley, environmental attorney, and currently an Elisa Viejo City Council candidate who's been monitoring the Orange County Municipal Forums on whether to adopt motions, adopt the notion to join U.S. Attorney Jeff Sessions' challenge to California's Senate Bill 54 on sanctuary cities. Well, I I thought it was a very remarkable situation that there were so few definitive answers in that forum, I mean, that they were so ill-prepared, really undermines
1: their sort of municipal kind of, the, the mantle of authority in there. It, it undermines democracy, doesn't it? And, well, and that too. You, you walk in and you realize um, that these gentlemen, and Elisa Viejo City Council are all men, uh, you realize that these gentlemen have already made up their minds. And they're not actually there to listen to public comment. They're not there to listen to their constituents or the people who just were bused in. Um, They're just their perfunctory function to sit there and listen. And that's it. A kind of
0: blatant use of a platform for just for that very raw kind of sort of agenda there. So the demographics are important to examine in the people that were offering testimony, the people that were assembling, that's the first part of it, and then speaking. Tell us about the city's constituents versus those that were apparently imported. I mean, some of them said, yeah, we're from Arizona. But to the extent, I mean, I know one who's very, very well known for showing up everywhere, and he told us at the meeting, he's from Torrance, California. But so, breakdown, so really, who was really from Elisa Viejo, and how far flung were the rest?
1: So, in California, when you go to public meetings and public hearings like that, they are not rec- they are not allowed to require you to state where you were from. Um, so before the meeting started, a group of friends and I went around and asked everybody, "Please, oh, please say where you're from." Um, so because hopefully the constituents of El Viejo who will you know what they have to say, will have more bearing on the city council members' opinions. Uh, when we looked back at the video. Uh, the overwhelming majority of Aliso Viejo residents who self-identified as Elisa Viejo residents were, um, did not want to opt out of SB 54. The Elisa Niguel Democratic Club, and in particular, a woman named Trina Manjoni, had um, tallied all, she spent hours watching wow. the videos, tallied all of them. And I believe that there were 53 uh, residents from Aliso Viejo. And I, I I'm going to try to remember the exact number, I've got it uh, written down somewhere, but I I believe 46 of them were in favor of not opting out of SB 54, um, which speaks volumes. Right, the the vast and overwhelming majority of the people who were from Eliso Viejo, the people who were voting on these city council members, said that they didn't want to file this amicus brief. Well,
0: that's I use the word constituents very advisedly. Yes,
1: that's theirs. Yes, and the majority of people who were brought in, not only from other areas in California, but also from out of state, were the ones that were against uh, SB 54 and, and, and were urging the council to opt out. Now, the council members' duty is to their constituents. It's not to people from Torrance. It's not to people from Arizona, but we saw them sit there and and ignore the constituent's voice. So, and can we reasonably expect that that
0: those that group of imports they're going to show up and they're going to go on tour and go to every single city? holding these forums?
1: Yes. In fact, I recognize several of them as as being present in the other meetings. Um, So I assume that they're just going to be making the tours. I have no idea how they pay for that. Um, In fact, I read an article about one of the gentlemen who was there who had flown to Austin the week before and had been kicked off an American Airlines flight for being so disruptive. Um, So I think these are just professional agitators.
0: Well, and I, I want for everybody listening to appreciate, too, that there was like a, a a particular way they're comporting. And I've seen this at other forums that aren't related to SB 54, whether it was at Politicon or whether it's outside a congressional member's district office. These folks that are supportive of the opting out, they're all of them live streaming on their Facebook accounts, and they are sweeping the entire venue with their screens all of us were captured on there any one of us could be doxxed with the in the way that they follow up with the people they pick up on their screens and it's sort of like it was a friends of the groom friends of the bride situation i saw inside that venue so there were so you you knew which ones were supporting the opt-out measure they're the ones that were live streaming i mean it was
1: like in our faces right you know, and I've got I've got two interesting stories that came out of that meeting. The first one okay. was I was uh, I was sitting next to a very beautiful, very lovely and intelligent elderly woman, my mother. Uh, I'm not going to give her exact age, but we'll just say between 70 and 80. Um, and we saw a Trump supporter or I don't know if he was a Trump supporter, but somebody who was uh, urging the council to fight SB 54 came up to her and pushed her oh, really? Um she is not a large woman. She is elderly. Uh, and she basically had to ask for assistance from the sheriffs after politely telling the gentleman to sit down. But these are the kind of people we're dealing with, with uh, local residents who are older, who, you know, are there peacefully and they're just simply being attacked, um, pushed around physically manhandled. The other sad story was as I was walking out of the council meeting, uh, I was approached by one of the people who had been bussed in, and was told that I should be ashamed of myself. Why? Uh, because I have two young children, and I was taking this position, which I thought was rather curious, because my children weren't there, um, and I don't know this gentleman, and so I don't know how he knew I had two young children. Uh, but then, when I looked over at what? him, uh, when I looked over at him, he was holding his phone and he was perusing my campaign webpage. They, they, they were doxing live then, so they were they were. Definitely aware of who I was making, in my opinion, somewhat of a veiled threat against my children uh, who are, you know, five and one. They had no reason to know that I was a child, you know, that I was a mother, that my children were that young. But he was approaching me and telling me I was a shameful mother, that I should be ashamed of myself. These are the kind of people we're dealing with. You know, in our democracy, one of the fundamental cornerstones is that we are able to disagree amicably and peacefully. And we're seeing the degradation of that.
0: Well, and along with the comportment, I want to observe that when finally uh, Councilmember Chum was chum chun with, with an ch- N with an N, that he was trying to parse out how does this all work, what are the fiscal impacts, what's the rationale. He was doing what is the, the appropriate due diligence of an office holder to find out what to do and how to vote and i noticed that this crowd uh, the trump supporters the opt out supporters were so exasperated there was no they had no appreciation for a deeper understanding they were allergic to nuance and they they were just chomping on the bit about that too they weren't so it and the the rest of the people were very incredulous that as we were talking about earlier that they were sort of making everything up as they were going along any i mean as at have you ever seen anything like that in all your years of litigating? No, and participating in civic activities.
1: The short answer is no. You know, I've been like I've mentioned attending the city councils for uh, a long time, and I will say that of the gentlemen that are up there, um, Ross Chun, who is the mayor pro proten- tem, and the one who was asking all of the questions appears to me to be one of the only ones that ever does his homework. Is um, that right? Yeah. He, he usually asks very pointed questions, intelligent questions. He has taken the time to think about these issues. Um, and I oftentimes witness the other council members simply rolling their eyes when those questions come about. Generally, in Aliso Viejo, we have almost nobody attending the city council meetings. It's usually uh, myself and two other people who are in the audience. A small party, an intimate (laughs) intimate council meeting. We all know
0: each other very well. Um, You know, so... so so do, how did they take your testimony, or your, I'm not sure, it's not considered testimony, but your public comments? So they say, hello, Tiffany, again? Or is it, I mean, since they know you well. They do we know missed, me. We, we we missed that part since we were outside, we could see.
1: Right. So I was the third speaker. The first one was uh, congressional uh, person Dana Rohrabacher. Oh, that's we should, right. We, we was, should chat about that for a second Yes, as we well. should. Um, and I was the third. And, you know, I, I declared my candidacy a while ago, more than a year ago. And for the longest time... Uh, actually going back, when I first declared my candidacy, I am a very type A person. So I walked right up to every single one of the council members, including the people I would be running against, and introduced myself. Um, I'm not shy. I don't beat around the bush. It took them about a year to acknowledge me. Is um, that right? And, and the reason why they acknowledged me was I was able to uh, force their hand and to make Ross Chun the mayor pro tem. Um, so nowadays, when they see me, they at least say Hello. Um, it's usually not more than that. Um, and during public comment, they certainly don't acknowledge me. They wouldn't, you know, say Aliso Vejo City Council candidate because that would be uh, not in their best interest. But, um, you know, I got up and I spoke and I, I took a position that I really think that they should have listened to. And that is simply that there is an irresponsible fiscal impact to them doing this. All four of them ran on platforms of fiscal conservancy. Um, And if that's the case, then they really ought to be considering that. But that's part of the red meat on the buffet. That is. And so at what point point do they get and why do they get to make the decision as to what we should be wasting taxpayer dollars on? We're facing budgetary crises with the rising sheriff's costs, with all sorts of other issues going on. Why are we spending money, even if it's $10,000? Why are we spending money on this when the county's decision is going to be binding upon us anyway?
0: Okay, so... Dana, Congressman Dana Rohrabacher, not only was he double dipping, he he, got, he could show up at his own uh, the municipality. Well, actually, it's, it is his district, though. So Elisa so, Viejo is his district. It is. It doesn't used to be, but it right. is now. So he spoke before you. And so
1: what did you want to say about his
0: comments it, it in the session?
1: It wasn't so much his comments. It was the interesting aspect of, you know, there were hundreds of people gathered outside the the meeting started at seven and I got there at five and there was already a large crowd of people waiting to get in. It's a first come first serve basis. Right. So the first 75 people who got in the door were to take a seat and be able to, you know, to witness the, the, the hearing. What I was concerned about was I was one of those first people. So I was in the front, front row, um, the council members, I don't know who had made the decision, but they allowed Dana Rohrbacher to enter in the back door and his staff and to have front row seating. To me, that seemed as though it was depriving Aliso Viejo residents and constituents of the right to witness their local government in action. It just turned into a pageant with that gesture. It, it just turned into blatant favoritism. Yeah. Why would Dana Rohrbacher be given preference over somebody who actually has a say in this matter, a constituent of Aliso
0: Viejo. Well, the irony is how many uh, public meetings has he had as a representative?
1: <laughs> that's a, that's so, a very good point. So he's
0: showing up in the back door for your meeting, but when's his meeting
1: happening? Right. And, you know, it'd be interesting if he was to actually hold a meeting on this, although it, he shouldn't. It's a state issue. But, you know, and actually answer some questions. It's right. fine and grand that he can stand up for his three minutes and, and give his spiel, but he doesn't actually have to respond or answer to any constituents. And that's a problem.
0: So the deliberation, uh, as we said, they were making up as they're go- going along. So what did they exactly, so for people to know uh, and can recognize this for their subsequent, and we'll run down everybody, the, the scheduled meetings that start from tonight and go into next Monday. So what was the actual vote on in that, the, the, as they said, they bifurcated two, two different items?
1: Right. So, so bifurcate, for those people who don't know, means basically split up. So we had two issues on the agenda related to SB 54. And the first one was whether or not we wanted to file an amicus brief. Now, an amicus brief is amicus comes from Latin and basically means friend of the court. It is a way of alerting the court to the fact that while we are not a party to the lawsuit, we are interested in the outcome. And this is our position. Um, The second option that was on the staff report prepared by the mayor Um, was a resolution, and a resolution is not necessarily a law in a state, but it is the stating of the intent of the city council. And in this case, the resolution, also written by the mayor, who's not an attorney, um, simply said, we will follow the rule of law and request that Congress enact comprehensive legislation with respect to immigration. So, breaking that down the amicus brief like we've talked about means you're just stating your position the other option that the city could have had or could have decided on and they discussed it at length was whether or not to join the lawsuit meaning actually become a party to the lawsuit incur all of those attorneys fees uh, fighting this fight when you join a lawsuit not only do you incur additional costs it becomes the ruling you have more of a say in the ruling Um, the amicus brief is simply a way to let the court know that you are taking a position, and the resolution is what it is. Now, when I read the resolution, I had a fundamental issue with it as oh. an, as an attorney, um, because it really meant nothing. And so, what it said was, "We are going to follow the rule of law." Well, newsflash: they are already required to follow the rule of law. They can't simply say we are going to follow the rule of law and I get to decide what that rule of law is. That was one of the other things I mentioned during the city council meeting, that we have three branches of our government for a reason, right? We've got the yeah. legislative, we've got the executive uh, the executive, and the judiciary. And what we saw in this resolution and in comments by uh, the council members was that they were actually declaring SB 54 and the resulting legislation as unconstitutional now to me that's a usurpation of power right I mean you can challenge it and you can say I think that this law is unconstitutional but thank goodness we have a judiciary with qualified people who get to look at and analyze independently these laws to determine whether or not they are constitutional it is not the role of city council members of Aliso Viejo to determine if there is an unconstitutionality or an unconstitutional aspect of a law that the state legislature has enacted. That's for the courts. And undermining, in
0: addition to that undermining of their comporting themselves as a legislative body was their inability to answer all the jurisdictions overlapping, you're talking the branches of government, but then there's the overlapping jurisdictions, the, the state laws, the municip the the county laws with the, with the sheriff, mm-hmm. and then what guides the the education system within Elisa Viejo. Every because this SB 54 would impact every single one of those jurisdictions, and so they they were completely inept in understanding what what the effect was of their motions on reconciling so many overlapping jurisdictions. What how would it be operationalized? There was they were zero. And explaining that.
1: That's exactly right. And I think that Ross Chun made that point that we had no, and when I say we, I mean we as a city body, um, had no idea exactly how much of this resolution would affect anything. Would it affect the sheriff's contract? Would it affect the county? Would it affect the state? They hadn't done their homework. They didn't know the answers. The city attorney had not prepared, no fault of his own. Presumably he wasn't actually asked to do that work. Um, So you really just sort of had these people up on the dais making decisions based on emotions or political maneuvering
0: i guess a, an extra credit project for somebody not for you but be to a freedom of information act if necessary to find out what kind of correspondence preceded this meeting uh, between the council and their legal counsel to see whether you know it was set up for him not to be able to answer or if it, he was just sort of given a kind of a keep-it-low-key kind of instruction. I mean, it would be interesting to know, but that's an extra credit project. So there will be more meetings, and I'm going to run by everybody these that are are known to date. Newport Beach and Orange will be meeting tonight. This is April 10. If you're listening live, it's tonight. Newport Beach's meeting will be at 7, and Orange, the City of Orange, will be at 6, that the, to consider the, these motions, uh, reasonably comparable kinds of motions. Westminster will meet f- April 11 at 7 p.m. Los Alamitos will be meeting April 16 at 6 p.m. Laguna Niguel is tentative on April 17 at 7 p.m. And Lake Forest uh, at uh, 6.30 on the April 17th. Dana Point, April 17th at 6 p.m. I did reach out to the city council um, member in Irvine for information about whether and when Irvine will be having a similar form, and I have not heard from them at this date up until now. So you'll be going to uh, how many other meetings? Or I guess you can stream
1: some, but you'll be attending some? You know, with two young kids, sometimes it's hard to go to all of these city council meetings. I will definitely be at the Laguna Niguel meeting. They're my neighbor. They're part of... Uh, my club, probably Dana Point as well, simply because I grew up part of the, my time, part of my life at Dana Point. I wanted to make one last comment, if I could, oh, um, and that is, you know, when I was sitting there listening to the hours and hours and hours of public comment, something became very apparent to me, and that is that people have not actually read the law. Uh, they were their understanding based on what I perceived was that SB fifty four eradicated. Uh, immigration, illegal immigration uh, regulations, meaning that nobody could be deported. Nobody could have any sort of crime or punishment as a result of illegal immigration. And that's simply not the case. SB 54 simply says that the local police officers will not provide certain information to federal officers. But in certain circumstances, they will, including if that undocumented immigrant has committed a violent crime. Um, So these people who come around and say we're allowing murderers and rapists to stay, no, that's simply inaccurate. What it is allowing a woman who perhaps maybe has a traffic violation to feel safe and comfortable going to the police services to report a rape. Because she knows that her undocumented status will not automatically be transmitted to the federal agencies. Um, and she can feel safe and comfortable that someone will try to prosecute that violent crime against her. Should she have committed a violent crime, uh, then the local police officers are you know, required to send that information on to the federal officials.
0: And that's the part that's so distressing about this whole, this whole collision of ideologies is that there is a very vulnerable population that they're they they stop reporting domestic abuse and other kinds of who knows what abuse may be from from municipal security officers. That that happens with I'm people sure. that so so none of there's no protection. It's gone away. And that's where that nuance that is lacking in those that are trying to opt out of S B fifty four. Uh it it's a it's a, a miserable disposition. Yes. I'd have to to call it on that. Well, I really appreciate your posting us on what's going on. It's very important that we understand that. And I'm going to post the meeting times. And you can understand, folks, that this is going to be at the council chambers of each of those cities. I'll be posting them on the podcast summary so people can follow that or they can stream it. But it's best, I think it behooves us to attend in person that. So not that you're going to, you're not going to flip anybody that's showing up. Everybody's pretty hardwired with their political disposition there, but just to witness. Witnessing is more than the 85% of life showing up. It's interpreting. It's like the next 10%. So we're 95 when we show up. And and staying to the very end, this Elisa Viejo meeting went to about 1.30 a.m. And there you find out, Who's doing their job on the city council and the kind of reaction and the comportment of all of those present and the breakdown, as we're saying, of the, the demographics. So, St- Tiffany Ackley, thank you for coming in studio with us today to talk about this. And uh, and stay tuned. We'll, uh, I don't know how many municipal candidates I'm going to be having on in the run-up to the general election, but I surely hope we can uh, maybe have you back at that time and, and some of the... Uh, the ones who, against whom you're running. Great. Okay, thank you so much. This was Tiffany Ackley. She's environmental attorney and current Aliso Viejo City Council candidate who's been monitoring the Orange County Municipal Forums on whether to adopt motions to join U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions' challenge to California's SB 54 and Sanctuary Series. We'll be right back after a short station break with UCI Law Professor Alex Camacho, And he is going to talk about this pressing business with the California Coastal Act. It's budding in San Mateo County and may have consequences along our entire coast. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thanks for staying tuned. That was Project Pablo, and the track is called Less and Less. Thanks for tuning in to the show. My next guest is UCI Law School Professor Alex Camacho, just the person to take up a development that portends to have an impact throughout our California Coastal Zone about a challenge to the California Coastal Act making its way up through the court system. Alex Camacho specializes in environmental and natural resource law, land use regulation, and governmental organization with a particular focus on adaptive management, collaborative governance, and climate change. He's published articles in the Washington University Law Review, Yale Journal, on regulation, UCLA Law Review, Emory Law Journal, North Carolina Law Review, Colorado Law Review, Brigham Young University Law Review, Harvard Journal on legislation, Columbia Journal of Environmental Law, and Stanford Environmental Law Journal. Alex Camacho's interdisciplinary research involves collaborations with experts in ecology, land use planning, political science, computer science, genetics, philosophy, and sociology. Very, very dangerous guy. He is an elected member of the American Law Institute is the inaugural director of the UCI Law Center for Land, Environment, and Natural Resources, and is a scholar at the Center for Progressive Reform and serves on the Executive Committee of UCI Oceans and keeps a joint appointment with UCI's political science department. Prior to joining UCI, Alex Camacho was professor at Notre Dame Law School and research fellow at Georgetown University Law Center and practiced environmental and land use law. Alex completed his Bachelor of Arts in Political Science right here at UCI, his Juris Doctor's Law degree at Harvard Law School, and his LLM at Georgetown University. Alex Camacho uh, comes to us today from just over the other side of the campus. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Alex.
2: Thank you so much. I'm, I'm a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, it's great having you on. Former Coastal Commission Director Peter Douglas. On this show, just before he died, repeated his well-known refrain, the coast isn't saved, it's being saved every day. It's been 40 years since the Coastal Act was adopted. Many challenges, of course, to the to the tenants of resource protection, public beach access, and many land use decisions right down to the square foot of concrete port, I must venture to say. Challenges of many kinds surely succeeded in trimming and redefining this law, and uh, remarkably, the jurisdiction only in the at the year of 2014 was enabled a capacity to collect fines. That was sort of a big deal. So enter Vinod Kosla. Co-founder of Sun Microsystems with a lot of capital to move around, he would like to privatize a public good. He wants his Martins Beach, San Mateo, to himself. So I'd like for you, Alex, to to weigh in. I'm, we're we're seeing it as recently as this February that Mr. Kosla is retaining Paul Clem- Clement, and he's got quite the. Uh, Supreme Court kind of uh, CV where uh, Paul Clement has appeared. It's the Gilded Age. Should we have seen Mr. Kosla's challenge coming?
2: Well, I, I think given the history of the of the particulars of the case, uh, I think uh, it's not completely surprising that he was he's willing to, given that he's well resourced, um, to try to try his luck at getting the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. Uh, what's a little surprising is that, uh, 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 depending on uh, your perspective, is uh, the change of sort of the claims that he's making at this point in time uh, compared to what has been argued before at the state level, at the California District Court and the appellate court, and then for the California Supreme Court. Uh, and essentially, uh, the the case was brought by Surfrider Foundation on a pretty uh, narrow question. It didn't really raise many direct constitutional questions. Essentially... Um, I guess before doing that, you know some basic facts of what's Please. going on there. Yes. Um, uh, the road, uh, uh, there's a road uh, uh, that is the only dry land route from Highway One to Martin's Beach. Uh, that road is uh, is on uh, Mr. Kosla's property. Um, before he owned the property, prior owners had the immediately prior owner had allowed the public access to the beach for for a particular fee for a while, uh, and in fact, Kosla did that at first as well but then after a few months stopped doing that and uh in fact locked the gate uh to, to for access to the beach. And so the claim by surf rider on a very, was fairly discreet saying locking the gate and closing the road is it, it, it qualifies as development under the California Coastal Act and that requires a permit. Uh right. and Mr. Costa never applied for a permit. Uh so That was the basic narrow case initially under the California District Court, uh, and the California District Court agreed uh, that the interpretation of development is broadly defined in the law and includes things including uh, locking a gate. Um, And the appellate court agreed as well. Uh, At that point in time, then uh, Kosla brought it to the California Supreme Court, uh, and the California Supreme Court has authority, but is not required to review a case. And it, and it did. I it decided to deny uh, review. Uh, and so now uh, Mr. Koslaw is bringing the case and filing a writ in the uh, writ of certiorari, which is a basically it's a discretionary writ for the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court may decide to grant the case or not, but asking the Supreme Court to hear the case. Uh, And it takes about four – it takes four justices uh, to – they have to agree to grant review for it to be heard. If they don't choose to do so, the the merits of the case will never be heard.
0: Well, the Surfrider attorney mentioned that he just didn't think that that this would be heard before the Supreme Court. So is there a basis for his – uh, understanding or uh, how do you interpret? Where are are we at the cusp of having this challenge go all the way through, or do you think they got this right? The Surfrider Foundation representation.
2: Well, filing? you know, it, I always it's always ah. dangerous to try to predict what the justices are going to do, especially when every time there's a new composition. Exactly, and, and it's not clear exactly where they're going to go. Uh, you know, uh, I think uh, there's a there's a number there's a number of different issues to unpack in the case. Please. But the, the basic, I mean, the basic claim now at this point in time is that requiring him to apply for a development permit to close his road to the beach would be an unconstitutional taking of his private property. So he's now expanding it, the analysis to be beyond and sort of looking at the narrow questions of what the Coastal Act developed, what a development under the Coastal Act, and claiming that um, it's unconstitutional – for, uh, for the Coastal Commission to, as, he, as, the, as the petition puts it, quote, command that a private property owner may not take any action that would impact the intensity of the public's use of or access to the ocean without first obtaining a permit. Um, what he's doing there is that, or his lawyers are doing, is they're challenging the law, the Coastal Act, as written, not just as applied to him. Uh, And in fact, he kind of has to do that because he hasn't applied for a permit. I mean, it was about... Application the, the the classic way this case would be heard would be uh, Mr. Kosla would apply for a development permit as required under the Coastal Act and then would maybe the Coastal Commission would include a condition or or some sort of right. provision uh, or maybe not approve the permit and then claim that as applied to him um, the Coastal Act is uh, is in violation of the, of something in in this case in violation of the the Constitution. Uh, that is a – neither case is a particularly easy case to win, but that's a slightly easier case to win. Uh, to make the claim that the Coastal Act, as written, is unconstitutional, um, it would be it – would, it would have both very w- wide-ranging effects, but also it makes it m- much less likely that he would win the case. So uh, you know, essentially uh, – it's taking, again, another step back – I mean yes. the Coastal Act – You know, passed in the early 70s. uh, You know, actually, Proposition 20 was passed in the early 70s by voters, really uh, concerned about development on the coast and and the impact of that development on coastal resources, but also public access. Uh, And about four years later, the state legislature passed this Coastal Act, which basically embodies what the proposition had asked for, and it tries to balance the right to develop with you know, pretty robust policies to protect uh, public resources and access. Um, So it it recognizes the private right of landowners, but also recognizes the public interest in protecting resources. So the way it does that is it tries to create – it creates development standards for any development in the coastal zone, which is, you know, over a million acres along the coast of California. And one of the key provisions of that law, Article 2 – Essentially mandates that development shall not interfere with the public's right to access the beach, uh, and and that is it, it, the, the statute says that. But um, it's really enshrining what the Con- California Constitution requires. I mean, the California Constitution actually guarantees public access to the California coast. So on the one hand, you've got this very robust, you know. California constitutional law that says that you know that the public has should have guaranteed access to it but on the other hand there is a recognition in the coastal act as well as in the US and California constitution of this private right of, of property right so right. in many ways that the the case is trying to accommodate these two very important public uh, and private goods yeah. constitutional principles right
0: right yeah well and so that and folks just to Run a little other data point. He's racked up a uh, could be up to uh, it could bring penalties to more than twenty million dollars. That's what the the uh, San Jose Mercury. I'm quoting them, so I'm I'm taking. I'm hoping I got that right. He's he's got lots of penalties for those for uh, for his activities there. So is this? I mean, Paul Clement knows he understands this, but is it just? Mr. Kosla's way of trying to say folks we are going to run the board we know there's a new composition on the Supreme Court we're going to we're just going to sort of really shake the the rafters of the uh, of these principles that you were just talking about Alex is I mean is this just some kind of a a big poker game here to try to see for Paul Clement to see what cards are going to be the highest in this game
2: so I I mean I think I, I think that it's possible I think um Certainly, there has been a for a significant period of time. There's been a movement of, uh, of sort of conservative property rights scholars and and advocates like the Pacific Legal Foundation, who are uh, supportive of this litigation. Oh, I'm sorry, of this position, uh, of the petition for writ to uh, to sort of change takings jurisprudence, if you will, uh, the uh, federal U.S. constitutional uh, jurisprudence regarding takings, and and certainly there it, that that might be what the clement and uh, uh, who has uh, in other Supreme Court cases uh, tried to champion conservative causes before the Supreme Court. I'm not sure if Mr. Kosla is uh, of politically uh, interested in those issues. It's very possible that on a more micro level it's it's serving as additional leverage in any negotiations between Mr. Kosla. And the lands commission about you know, negotiating over any easement if the if the state uh, were to uh, try to purchase through eminent domain or otherwise. I do think you know the, uh, you know that the, the takings analysis. That's interesting here yes. is that, that he's raising – You know, typically for you know, uh, the U.S. Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, requires that the private property should not be taken for public use without just compensation. Um, the classic condemnation is eminent domain. This uh, is more a classic in, uh, inverse condemnation where the private party is saying that the, the government's action is the equivalent of eminent domain. Uh, For most takings cases, whether we're talking about this inverse condemnation or classic condemnation – well, I'm sorry, particularly for the inverse condemnation regulatory takings cases, uh, they mostly do sort of a case-specific ad hoc analysis to see if it's it's a taking, Uh, and and it's very hard to make that case. But one of the major exceptions to that is if, if what is being argued is that it's a physical taking. Uh, that, where the government authorizes a permanent physical invasion of the land. And so what uh, Mr. Clement is trying to do, uh, I, I think, oh, and what Mr. Kostler is uh, trying to do in some ways is claiming that this is a, not just a regulatory taking. This is a physical taking. Uh, it, 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 well, if you're able to demonstrate a physical taking, it's an easier case to win than if it's a regulatory taking. So it's possible that they're trying to expand uh, jurisprudence to include uh, this sort of action. The challenge that they're going to have to butt up against, of course, is that in prior cases where this has been – where it's the most likely sort of parallels, uh, the person who was raising the claim had applied for a permit. In fact, there was a famous, US, I mean, a famous California Coastal Commission case in the 80s the involving exactly this sort of question, uh, yeah. Nolan versus yeah. California Coastal Commission. But in that case, the California Coastal Commission said as a condition of your permit, you must give access – to the public, and the Supreme Court did say in that context that there is a new standard that applies for such an analysis. Essentially, that there has to be a nexus. A
0: nexus case. Yeah. Oh,
2: test. Um, but in this case, there has—he never even applied for the permit. Where, the, and that's also why he's racking up these sort of potential penalties that the Coastal Commission might be raising. So, I think it's very likely, uh, you know, that the Supreme Court won't even grant the case. Uh, or, or grant a cert to hear the case, and even if, if they did, it's more likely that it, that, that decision would be a narrowly decided on the, the particulars of the Coastal Act. But it doesn't mean that it, that if the Supreme Court, uh, as currently uh, composed, may or may not be more amenable to uh, this sort of analysis. To be honest, uh, the, the fact that Justice Scalia is not on the court, who is one of the more aggressive proponents of uh, a conservative take on taking students and has been replaced by another conservative judge, right. I'm Cossett. not sure the composition is that different, but it is possible that they could get four justices to be willing to hear the case. Right. Whether they could actually get five votes is, is a higher climb.
0: So, and the I just want to mention in terms of the arena of the, the public acquisition, I guess Mr. Koslas offered the the uh, sale at what seems to be the, ent- the the value of his entire property, like $30 million, But the, the Lands Commission has evaluated, estimate that the 6.4 acres it were the state to acquire it would be, they give it a market value of like 360 I right? think that's right. I think dollars. that's right. And
2: also, by the way, the, the Coastal Commission has also claimed that it already has a prescriptive that the public has a prescriptive right,
0: yes well, to the was. property
2: too, so I mean on the it, it, again it, you can't claim he couldn't claim a takings if, in fact it was adjudicated to be a prescriptive right because it wouldn't be his property. the easement would be pro- property held by the public, of course, this hasn't gone through the permitting regulatory process he hasn't what, what's called in law, he hasn't exhausted his administrative remedies. So these are other reasons for why it's likely that a court would say, look, if you want to raise these different claims, you want to say they don't have a prescriptive right, you want to say that they are condemning your property, you need to go to the typical regulatory process and then raise the claim, and then maybe we can hear it. Well, uh, so, Al- Alex, yeah. if, excuse me, because
0: we're about ready to wrap this yeah. all up, is that the prescriptive right, is that dealing with the fact that it, this easement had been used openly by the public for years before Mr. Costa acquired that parcel? Right, uh, right.
2: Uh, no one's claiming there's an express easement where the parties that negotiated and recorded an, uh, an easement against the property. What the Coastal Commission is claiming is that he has a pres- uh, that mean, sorry, the public has a prescriptive right, that they've been using the property sufficiently open a- enough, a- adversely enough, that it meets the California requirements for a, a, an easement prescriptively. Well,
0: you were the guy to answer this. This is great. I'm so glad that we could have you on the show today. My guest was uh, UCI Professor Alex Camacho, specializing in environmental natural resource law, talking about this challenge, the California Coastal Act, by Mr. Vina Kosla, property owner of a parcel on St. Martin's Beach in California. Alex Camacho, UCI law professor, thank you for being on today's Ask a Leader.
2: Thank you very much. Take I really appreciate it. Thanks
0: a lot. We are going to sign off right now. That was my wrap. Next week, I'm going to have on California 45th Congressional District candidates Brian Ford and Katie Porter. And finally, as we move deep into the California primary season. So remember, June 5th is Election Day. Top vote getters, regardless of party, advance to the general. That's the way it works in California. Talk with you next week. Thank you all for listening.